3: The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by BolandBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BolandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more and try HBO Now free for one month by going to Roku.com slash Gab. And by ScoreBig. Did you know that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold? ScoreBig works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get those unsold seats at huge savings. Go to ScoreBig.com right now, click on the microphone, and enter the promo code CULTURE. You'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's ScoreBig.com promo code CULTURE.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Men Are Still Good edition. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2016. You hadn't heard that yet? No. It's a larf. Uh, full credit to Dana Stevens. Uh, and Ben Affleck. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, on today's show, Marvel versus DC, Gotham versus Metropolis, and maybe just maybe the snobs versus the demos. Superman versus Batman. Dawn of Justice has repelled the critics and attracted massive box office. What is going on? And then Samantha Bee, the justly beloved correspondent from The Daily Show, has her own entry in the late night sweepstakes. We discuss Full Frontal, her weekly late night news satire on TBS. And finally, what is it to be a bro? We discussed the bro concept with Wesley Morris, critic at large for The New York Times. Joining me today is Slate's editor Julia Turner. Hello Julia Hi, Steve. Uh, it's nice to be face to face.
2: yeah, embodied
1: <laughs> I know. Um, it's nice to be embodied. Um, and uh, and Dana Stevens, the film critic Hey Steve. It's nice to be embodied with you too, Dana. Nice yes. to see you.
4: Head on a stick here in a room together.
1: <laughs> it's been too long. Um,
2: that wouldn't be embodied. That would be like <laughs> and stickened.
4: But didn't didn't you once accuse me of being a head on a stick, a human lollipop, as I recall? <laughs> <laughs> in, in what context? I don't know. Talking about yoga or something. You said you just seemed like a kind of person who regards himself as a head on a stick, and you were completely oh, correct. God, what
1: a dickhead! <laughs> oh, God, really? I said that.
4: You said it lovingly, and I consented.
1: Um, Oh, dear. Um, uh, Julia, we must have some business before we start. Two
2: pieces. Two pieces. The first, we have a live show, our first in a while, coming up in New York City next week. In fact, it's worth probably briefly noting here that we are taping next Wednesday, April 6th at the SVA Theater. There are still tickets available at slate.com slash live. And that also means that we'll be posting the show a day late next week. So the show will go up Thursday rather than Wednesday. And then finally, for Slate Plus, members. We are doing a special bonus segment today prompted by an email we got from a listener saying, I'm going to be in New York for 24 hours. What should I do? And we emailed that listener a couple off the top of our head thoughts, but we thought we would reprise, 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 repurpose. We would go back to that subject for our Slate Plus segment. So if you're a member, look forward to that. If you're not, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus.
1: All right, Steve, let's commence. All right. Thanks, Julia. Moving on. Batman v. Superman Dawn of Justice is the first big tentpole of the summer of 2016. It stars Henry Cavill as the Man of Steel and Ben Affleck as the Cape Crusader. <laughs> oh, I got those wrong in the uh, run up. Wait, um, if you think
2: we're cutting that, you're so wrong. <laughs> all
1: right. In it goes. Uh, the movie also features Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor, Amy Adams as Lois Lane and Jeremy Irons as Alfred the butler it's directed by Zack snyder i will not even attempt to untangle the plot i will however now introduce a clip next time they shine your light in the sky don't go to it
5: the bat is dead
1: bury it consider this mercy Okay, we couldn't get through the clip without laughing. I think that signals where this is going to go. We're joined by Jamel Bowie, who is Slate's chief political correspondent and also a bit of a comic uh, fanboy. Yeah, Uh,
5: I I wouldn't say fanboy. I'd say comic uh, fan, someone who appreciates the form, but have plenty of critical thoughts about it all.
2: Yeah, fanboy is not a not a term that many people claim
1: for themselves, Steve, I don't think. I'm it's like sorry. hipster. Nobody <laughs> wants to be one. I, I wouldn't know. Okay, um, I'm moving right along. A lot of stupid movies, Jamel, make a lot of money, but I don't think I've ever seen so big a discrepancy as the one here between the critics who totally pan this movie. They seem to actually take it personally and revile it, um, almost without exception and without qualification in the box office for the film, which really has been enormous global box office already at nearing a half a billion dollars uh, pretty quickly out of the gate. We'll get to how what box office now means in a global context. Um, but for now, uh, the movie was reviled and it was a hit. Surely not everyone is hate watching this movie. Who's wrong here, the eggheads or
5: the peuple? I don't think the egg, egg, eggheads are wrong. It is, a, it is a very bad movie. I think that the general public is not looking for something that's sophisticated in superhero movies, right? they want to see Batman versus Superman fight. And as long as the movie delivers that much, they're quite happy. And, and and I mean, I have to say this does disappoint me somewhat as a fan of the characters and as kind of a, a longtime comic book reader, the persistent criticism of comic books and I think more or superhero comic books and more specifically the fans of superhero comic books is that they aren't actually interested in story or character. They're just indulging power fantasies and want to see sort of indiscriminate violence in service of the power fantasies. And that's what this movie is. And the massive box office total seems to suggest that at least for fans of these films, or at least the people who go to see these films, that criticism is very much true.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Although, isn't there some, maybe? It, maybe this is just like, clutching at straws of box office hope isn't doesn't this movie have an unprecedented drop off from its like Friday returns to its Sunday returns suggesting that a lot of the people who went to see it uh, even the the people most predisposed to like this movie went home and tweeted all their friends stay away stay back
5: it it does and you know there is some suggestion that this might look like the Green Lantern film from a couple years ago which had a a very good opening weekend and then just dropped off into oblivion as word of mouth got around that this was a bad film.
2: Okay, I think there's like a lot of fun meat and gristle to tear into on this one, a lot of uh, muscly man flesh we can can rend asunder when we get into the movie, while that got really violent. But before we do, I think we should talk about why this is an interesting failure or an interesting discrepancy between box office and quality, because to the uninitiated, it seems like yet another superhero movie but what it actually marks is a bid by Time Warner which owns the DC comic properties to try to launch a set of superhero movie franchises that can help them equalize the Marvel universe which between the Avengers movies the Captain America movies and some other set of movies and the Iron Man movies which which are all intertwined it's having having a good run not to mention the Guardians of the Galaxy movie which we all liked all right so Jamal, can you talk a little bit about like Marvel and DC and this rivalry and how they fared at the box office for the last, you know, 5 to 10 years and just like in general, like is is one Coke and Pepsi? Is there like a <laughs> is there like a McDonald's Burger King Avis Hertz dynamic between these two? Like what's the what's the broader macro story of these two, not Batman v Superman, but Marvel v DC going right. to going to battle and and what does this film perhaps pretend?
5: Well, you know, there is, at times, and I think their histories there have there has been a bit of Coke versus Pepsi element to the Marvel versus DC rivalry. But in general, um, the two companies um, from their beginnings, DC Comics in the 19, uh, 1930s, and 1940s, Marvel Comics, uh, in its sort of modern form, at least, in the 1960s, they have stood for sort of two different kinds of superhero, um, DC I think, as evidenced by kind of the, the mythic qualities of, of Superman, of Batman, of, of the Flash, like these sort of living gods, has always kind of put forth this kind of almost self-consciously mythic version of their superheroes, that they stand for these broad themes um, and these broad ideas, and they interact um, in a world uh, where that's understood by everyone. Marvel, on the other hand has traditionally portrayed heroes that are very much just people they have like human flaws human foibles and that i think continues um into the present day films what uh, stands out about the Mo- the marvel studios movies which are different than the the marvel property movies made by fox like X-Men and the Fantastic 4 or that the marvel studio movies um, are very much uh, about these characters as as people, right? So, in Iron Man in the Iron Man series, um, Tony Stark fights with his uh, with his robotic suit, but he also uh, deals with uh, relationship problems and alcohol pro and alcohol abuse and um, all these human qualities. And so, I think part of what gives the Marvel movies their charm is exactly this that they're they very much feature superheroics and, you know, massive world scale destruction, but they're also very much about um the characters themselves. That you in Guardians of the Galaxy, you like Star Lord and Groot and, and all of them, Rocket Raccoon for who they are just as much as what they can do. Uh in that, you know, in the handful of D C movies that have been made over the last couple of years, and I think I, I would include the the Christopher Nolan Batman movies as well, you're watching films that are less concerned with these people, um, less concerned with Bruce Wayne and more concerned with what Bruce Wayne represents, um, what, uh, in the case of Batman versus Superman or Man of Steel, what Superman represents.
4: I mean, I don't know about you, Steve, but coming out of 2013 Man of Steel, I felt no need to see Henry Cavill Mm -hmm. play Superman ever again. It was such a lifeless incarnation of the character and the idea that it's being now repurposed in order to create an ATM machine for a new company <laughs> exactly. it just strikes me as bottomlessly cynical. And not to mention that Ben Affleck, the combination of Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill in this movie, okay, it's, it's like two drains were opened at the bottom of the movie screen and all the energy just <laughs> poured out. There's no moment between the two of them that has a spark of life. The only moments in the film that do have to do either with the villain Lex Luthor Jr., played, I think, very in a very mannered but amusing way by Jesse Eisenberg, or a couple, maybe a couple of Amy Adams scenes. But these two superheroes that mm-hmm. we're supposed to be thrilled by the confrontation of are both just as boring as a sack of oats. <laughs> I,
1: couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And Jamel, it seems to me this movie was made under a series of constraints that were very hard to work their way out of cleverly. One was, first of all, you have to get these two people to fight. I mean, that's the you know premise yeah, it's upon. not
2: batman ampersand superman no all <laughs> right.
1: right so so the premise of the whole thing to cart people into the theater en masse is that you're going to see these two fight um that immediately creates all kinds of superhero problems right you have to create a plot that makes it convincing that they'd be somehow sufficiently enraged at each other to do that secondly one has superpowers and the other doesn't so you have to somehow right. equalize the two of them and to hide all of these strategicness uh all these strategic necessities, as plot necessities, they wrap the whole thing in ponderous theology about the nature of Superman as a quasi
5: god. Talk a little bit about what's uniquely awful about this movie. Sure, I, I think it's worth I think it's worth going back to the Marvel pictures real quick to to establish a contrast. So, before, Avengers came out in two thousand twelve, but before we got to the Avengers, we had Iron Man in two thousand eight, Iron Man two, 2 in two thousand ten, I believe, Captain America in like two thousand eleven. We had a series of films building up to the Avengers. And so by the time you got to the theaters to watch the Avengers, if you were a fan of these films or if you're just preparing, you could watch these characters sort of develop over time. You could see Tony Stark change over time. You could meet Captain America. You had some sort of investment in, in all of them. And so you had some reason to want to see them get together, to want to see them act in concert. This doesn't exist in Batman versus Superman. There is, There really is... Uh, no reason for them to be fighting um, within the context of the film, which is disappointing. Because in the in the kind of the the universe, the history of the characters, they have fought in the past, and the reasons why their fights have have been have held any weight whatsoever is because they had a prior relationship. They were friends. Um, they were friends with very different ideas about what it meant to be a hero, what it meant to operate. Um, sort of a bit outside the law, and those conflicts the, the fights then were vehicles for those conflicts, ways you could see these two men and their and their these two men in their kind of style of heroism play out um, and that doesn 't exist in this film. It really does seem as if the studio thought, Hey, we want to have Batman versus Superman fight because that just seems kind of cool let 's figure out a way to make that happen
2: yeah, I mean, the fight is is the biggest problem with the movie. And the movie takes, you know, it's probably two hours and 20 minutes running time. It takes about 90 minutes to get to the fight. And you know that they're gonna make up because it's not going to end with like them in conflict and then there's to be a whole other set of fight with the actual baddie but but just to i mean and i think we will spoil some details about the fight for example spoiler there is a fight so if you for some <laughs> godforsaken <laughs> reason, still want to see this movie unspoiled you should fast forward about 10 minutes to the it's end just of the segment ch- chess game batman v superman very collegial very friendly <laughs> <laughs> it's actually they play celebrity
3: <laughs>
2: um but no so like among the things about the fight, the fight is actually like a mind-bogglingly amazingly poorly executed thing, and it's worth picking apart how horrible it is. So for one thing, they're both there as dupes. So neither of them has agency where you're rooting for them or you're excited to see them do battle because... Batman is in this movie, sort of like an aging paranoiac who's like mad that there's another superhero in town, which is like not the hottest look as a set of motives. Like, basically, he's (laughs) motivated by jealousy and a sense that he's uh, and like a sense of impotence. So, that's like gross. And then Superman is like, who's this pesky humanoid? Screw this guy. He's in my way. They set up the fight. In the fight, somehow Batman has acquired a bit of kryptonite. But rather than just using it to kill his enemy, as he would if he were really, if his heart was in it, he like somehow turns it into a kind of like aerosol spray. And so he basically like fight roofies Superman (laughs) so that Superman is like diminished enough that he can prove his dominance over him. And then when he's in this fight roofied state, he... Fights in the most dirty, unbecoming manner that makes you basically feel like you can never respect Batman again. Hey, doesn't
4: he break a porcelain bathtub over Superman's porcelain head sink? while he's down? He just
2: kind of like flips his ragdoll body around and like knocks out some pillars. It's just like disgusting. That's all
4: Zack Snyder too. Zack Snyder. I mean, yeah. just to go on a brief tangent, is the mo- is one of the most sadistic action filmmakers there is. He just basically wants to enjoy seeing people get wailed on
2: and chopped. Yeah, so you're basically rooting for. Batman to be a like impotent insecure sad sadist or you're not but then what are you rooting for on the other side for like the inexorable force of like skull crushing you know a fist to like break the the wind out of Batman's windpipe I mean basically by the end of that fight I kind of am I'm like fuck I killed Ben off like he's like such a fucking asshole oh I
4: wanted them both to wipe each other out and to take the superhero right, so... genre with <laughs> them. and
2: then and then just just to I mean I'm the Superman quality too the other problem with this the fight and the broader movie is I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Christopher Nolan or Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, but I can at least acknowledge that they did something kind of new, right? Like they did add this kind of somber, brooding quality. They added this level of darkness. Like there, you did feel like you were in a fully realized and somewhat interesting world. And I do think that the, was it was it the second one that had Heath Ledger? Was like a genuinely, due to that performance and the resonance of that performance after Ledger's death and, and you know, not to undersell the rest of it, Uh, with Michael Caine and and Christian Bale. Like, to go there for a couple movies, fine. But to then turn Superman into also a sad, brooding guy? Like, isn't Superman all supposed to be plucky, cheer, and, and like, kind of grotesquely square bravado? And I could get that it would be hard to translate such a, like, square, macho character for the 20-teens, but they should have tried a little harder. It seems like he was just Batman, too. Yeah,
4: that well, they did it for for Captain America in the Marvel movies, right? He's somebody who manages to bring sort of old school pluckiness into the new superhero world, and 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 have it be an interesting tension. Yeah, right. the idea of a kind of cynical, tired Superman is just so so sad and limp. Who <laughs> who wants to see him win any fight?
2: No, I mean it feels funny to say that that this is a film of like squandered opportunity, especially I think. As our listeners know, uh, Dana and Steve and I don't necessarily relish the next superhero movie in the way that you do. Although I think we've all seen some that we like and some that we haven't over the years. But yeah, there's like so many almost good things like Amy Adams squandered as Lois Lane. The two things that made me saddest about her performance were one, they get her like basically naked in a bathtub. I'm like fucking Amy Adams has like an Oscar. She does not need to be naked in a bathtub for this movie. (laughs) I mean, you don't see too much, but like. Why'd she say yes to that? Like, this was not worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. and not that there's any shame if that's what she wants to do with her life, but like, come on, Amy. And then also her relationship with Superman is so annoying. He keeps shooting into the sky in the middle of their fucking <laughs> conversations. If I ever had a boyfriend who just would like drop a line and like be like, I'm not sure I can save the world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he does not even listening to you. But
1: Julia, to be fair, if you're in free fall between flight 58 and 56 and your boyfriend comes in and snags <laughs> you from certain death, you'll put up with an occasional <laughs> rapid absconding. She's
4: drawing up a pro and con list. Pro saves me from falling buildings when I'm hurled off by supervillains. Con, poor conversationalist, <laughs> bad listening etiquette.
2: I mean, that felt squandered. I also did, like, it's prettier than I thought compared to Zack Snyder. I decided to see a drunk on IMAX in 3D to, like, help. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I took wine in a a thermos, and it, it, like, it was less ugly than I thought. (laughs) There's, like, a lot of elegantly floating particulate matter in various scenes. Oh, but it's all that
4: bullshit Zack Snyder's slow time, yeah. you know, where the bullet has to be moving at a different speed than everyone in the background. It's just such bullshit. It's such a visual cliche. It's there was not one moment in this movie that was not a massive cliche. It's like. phony
1: baloney all the way through. Jamel, it was such a pleasure to have you back on the show to talk about this travesty, inco- travesty of a movie and make some sense of it for us. Uh, Jamel Bowie is the chief political correspondent for Slate. Jamel, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
2: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Bull and Branch Steve, If you want to get anything done, you have to sleep. You have to sleep well. It sucks when you don't. It sucks when you can't. And investing some time and money in making your bed an awesome thing that delights you every time you get into it at night, I think is such a good use of energy. I certainly have done so. And every time I pull my covers up, I think, ha. Ah. They have great quality sheets. They also have an amazing policy that allows you to purchase sheets, try them, and then send them back so you can, I mean, this is the thing that's the, the great risk, the great problem with buying sheets is that you could buy them and think they're the perfect ones for you. But if only you know what will make you say, ah, so you can try them and then see if they're your bag. And I think Dana has, has uh, incorporated some bowl and branchery into her, her sheet sets.
4: Oh, yeah. I love them. They're the all-weather sheets.
2: The all-weather sheet? That sounds like such a great retro slogan. (laughs) It's like the Morton Salt girl should be talking about the all-weather sheet. Bowl & Branch also has a special offer for our listeners. You can get 20% off your entire order. Sheets, but not just sheets, also towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off the entire order and use the promo code CULTURE. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com promo code CULTURE.
1: All right, moving on. Samantha Bee first came to public attention as a loopy but acerbic correspondent on John Stord's Daily Show. It was only a matter of time before her peculiar genius for being smart while playing dumb and delivering the biting apresue was applied to her own late night show. It is especially timely with an avowed sexist and a confirmed woman running for president. Full frontal, thank you, Julia. Full frontal has been on the air for a while now. Let's assess, but first let's listen to a clip.
3: How? Does removing access to health care increase health care?
5: We're not removing access to health care. We're improving.
4: So the intention of the law was not to do away with abortions. No. It was just to make them impossible.
5: Why are you know better than that? Do what do you I? mean impossible? I'm
1: mean, you what, anytime you start cutting on people's body, you need to have it in a procedure where it can be healthy.
4: Of course. You don't cut a woman in an abortion though. To be fair, when grew you up in ancient Westeros,
3: where they did abortions the old fashioned way. Uh, I
5: don't know. I don't know, but I, I've listened to many doctors tell me about the procedures that happen when you do an invasive surgery.
4: You don't seem to know anything specifically
3: about abortion, really, at all. And yet, you did all this with building regulations. What? You got a We do, But you know what? I don't see any reason to go rub anything in anybody's face.
0: You don't need to gloat.
3: Yeah.
5: You've done enough.
3: And so 8,000
5: bills I got to go deal
1: with,
3: You've things. done
1: it enough. <laughs> Julia, why don't I start with you? Uh, right off the bat, Samantha Bee is terrifically funny. She's tweaked the format. There's no desk. She comes out. She stands. Of course, she's not the first woman to have a late night um...
2: show. She's like the third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's
1: second or third whatever Joan Rivers, obviously. First one to have it in the satirical news format format to have a Daily Show-like show of her own. She well-earned it. What do you make about it so far?
2: Well, I some ways I think this whole episode could be called The Expectations Game. Like, I'd heard such terrible things about Batman v Superman that I spent the whole movie being like, this is like only as bad as Iron <laughs> Man 2. Like, this is terrible, but not like world historically terrible. And similarly and unfairly for poor Sam B., I'd heard all of these burblings of like this is the second coming. They should have given the Daily Show to her. It's like Trevor Noah, Trevor Noah stole it from Sam B. She's she's incredible. She's John Oliver twice over. Oh my god! Like I, which is nobody's fault but my own or whatever for waiting to watch it so late. It's good. It's good. She's funny. It's not like so good that you should reallocate your schedules and lives to make sure you never miss a minute of it. But if you like watching this kind of show, you should definitely be watching this one of this kind of show, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it didn't feel like a... Despite the fact that she stands energetically and delivers essentially a half-hour-long monologue punctuated with uh, video set pieces as opposed to sitting and having the guest rigmarole, it's like another good one of the shows. That was my response. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that that's so tempered in equivocation
1: and expectation. You you stole my lack of thunder. I have to say that was exactly how I felt about it. Dana, what do you think?
4: Well, I mean, I think some of the things that she does to shake up the format while appreciated also need a little bit of tweaking. It's early in the show and it could go lots of ways. I hope it lasts long enough to, to go different ways. But choosing not to have a desk and not to have a guest each week also means that the entire show is sam b and there's a lot of sam b standing you know wearing a black suit on a white stage talking to an audience and i felt like the show needed to be broken up with some more thematic segments there are some reported segments in the in the manner of the old daily show correspondent uh pieces where there there are these sort of faux interviews with people who don't quite understand they're being interviewed for a comedy show but it's always Sam B who's doing them so it, to me it felt it felt a little bit like it needed tonal variation throughout the half hour mm-hmm.
2: yeah i mean the thing that does feel fresh about it is just the sheer fact of it being a woman and that sounds boring in a way but there are there's a segment she does about untested rape kits and the travesty of the fact that it takes an incredibly long time for these things to get tested, that in fact some states destroy them, that is one of those like long running and ignored travesties of the American criminal justice system that just is like a, a drone that's been underpinning criminal justice for decades and so nobody can hear it anymore. And I don't think it's an accident that it was her show that was like, you know what, let's actually highlight this and hold this up for review and criticism. And, and I doubt that any of the sort of satiric news shows ignored the uh, Supreme Court oral arguments around the Texas abortion case and, and revisiting the notion of undue burden. So I don't think the fact that she did a segment with a Texas abortion doctor has to do with her gender particularly, but her angle on it is different and does feel fresh and does feel, this feels valuable and useful mm-hmm. to have someone who's making those jokes from that perspective.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And there was, uh, uh, in one of the episodes I saw, it was the one right after the most preposterous of the Republican debates in which the you know endowment of Donald Trump was one of the topics. But in general, the debate was nothing but crosstalk and yelling and completely ridiculous displays of juvenile one-upmanship. And they cut back to Samantha B after she's shown a clip from this. And she says, I don't mean to sound sexist, but I think men are just too emotional to be president. <laughs> and from her, that's just a f- terrific line. No one else can deliver it in that business the way she can. I agree with you almost down the line Julia. I would say that my first reaction to seeing a couple of these is that she probably should have gotten the Daily Show. It would have been a great move on their part. But also I had a second reaction Dana, I'm curious to know whether you share this at all. I may have reached my limit for let them eat satire. The 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 debasement of the culture as and especially the political culture as raw material for the late night shows and this is the kind of comedy placebo that I swallow on a nightly basis to wake up, you know, as a functionally sane human being, I've kind of reached the end of it in a weird way. I kind of, I, I want, I want rage and political action. I don't want to laugh, however on point the satire is.
4: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's maybe, is. I think it is possible that our whole culture has reached that point in this, in the sense that that desire to have a nightly place to laugh at the political absurdities of the day has dispersed into all these little niche markets right and you can you can go here for a taste of this style of it and there for a taste of another style of it, and the idea that that's sort of a institution that we return to, as in the old daily show days may may be gone, but I don't think it's going to be gone uh, in, in the way that you might prefer where all of these shows simply disappear from the landscape. I mean, I, to me, John Oliver is is now mm-hmm. filling that space yeah. in, in his weekly show, and my theory about why she didn't do The Daily Show is maybe she was offered it and she didn't take it. I mean, this is once a week, half an hour. That's every single night for half an hour, and she's and Samantha Bee's a mother, and maybe she didn't want her entire life to be taken over by the daily production of television.
2: hmm yeah, I don't actually think there's been clear reporting around what the rationale or line of thinking or you know order of offers was at Comedy Central, although it might be telling that Sam weekly show isn't at Comedy Central. But I also think it's interesting that her gender is still so much of a factor that we sort of think, oh, may- she's a mom. Maybe she wants to do a weekly show. I mean, not that that's not an unreasonable factor, but like, why shouldn't any of these people who are dads uh, or just people who like their yoga classes wanna have a weekly show instead of a daily show if you can get the economics of it right. I mean, I I, I do, it is one of those things where it both seems, it's crazy how crazy it is. It's crazy how rare it is. And it's valuable to have her voice there even though it does not feel like in 2016 it should be novel or surprising to have a woman just talk for half an hour. And I kind of like that. I like that she's not like, let me interrupt my voice with some other voices I like that she's just like, fucking listen to me. Fucking listen to me for half an hour. I'm not sure I'm going to, but I like that that's what she wants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I think on that note, we can leave it there. Um, The show is Full Frontal. It stars Samantha B. late of The Daily Show. Tell us what you think of uh, Full Frontal, whether you like it, whether you think she's keeping pace or exceeding Trevor Noah and um, John Oliver. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about her other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
2: The Slay Culture Gabfest is also sponsored today by Roku and HBO. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. And with HBO Now, you get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of HBO's addictive original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. No TV package required. I will say we just set up a Roku a couple months ago and it's so great and so easy. I did, at full disclosure, make my husband do it, but it seemed like it was easy for him. Uh, and I use it all the time, particularly when we're prepping for this show. Uh, my Monday night TV viewing was often a like sad scramble of me watching something on a tiny screen because I just couldn't do the math of how to get the streaming service to cooperate with the TiVo and Roku has made that much easier and made it much easier for me to watch exactly what I want to watch, exactly where I want to watch it. You can try HBO Now free for one month. Visit roku.com gab to learn more about Roku players and to get your one month free HBO Now trial.
1: All right, moving on. Wesley Morris is critic at large for the New York Times and a contributor to the Times magazine. His essay, Broliferation, he writes, courtesy of Jersey Shore, the bro became evidence of ridiculous male friendship, like the bond among veterans, but with self-tanner instead of casualties of war. He ends it on a wonderful note. He says, bro puts a dunce cap on patriarchy. Wesley Morris, welcome back to the show to talk to us about bros. Thank you for having me. Uh, Wesley, why don't we dive right in what? just go ahead and define a bro for us. I mean, loosely,
0: it is, it is a person f- primarily fond of using the word bro while also being the sort of person who might wear what we would now call athleisure, but at the time didn't have such a name. Um, I'm not sure I would give it that name now, but continue. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> loosely also defined as athleisure. You know, the stereotypical bro is a guy in either boat shoes or sneakers, shorts, sweatpants, cap, sunglasses somewhere on his face, but not his eyes, Um, (laughs) or his head, but not his. Could they be a
2: lanyard around his neck or pushed up on the forehead?
0: Uh, Pushed up on the forehead is more typical. Like even worn on the shirt collar is fine. Although I sometimes do that. I think bro is culturally white, but I know bros of all races, but you know, there's a kind of cultural, the thing that sort of most defines a bro is a kind of affinity for or comfort with using that word on all people, you know, a word that was typically defined, like a word that began as a truncated version of brother used by black people to black men somewhat fraternally but also politically to sort of identify black men in white spaces or, you know, out in public as being seen by other black people. What else do we have here? I, I mean, mean,
2: the thing that your piece puts its finger on so beautifully and that I hadn't quite examined myself, but that that is confusing about how we use bro now is that bro... Seems to upend a power structure in a good way by giving us all a way to make fun of white guys. I mean, right. basically, a bro. When you when you say bro, essentially the image is frat guy. Yes. and or like when I think of my prep school upbringing, we call them the cap crew. It's like the guys who wore the you know the varsity hats yes. backwards. Yes, it's, it's yes. like yes. that. There's a straight line, right? So it's the dudes of you know athletic white dudes of the sort who have typically been powerful in the culture. So it's like okay, here's a way to sneer at all of you and sneering is never fun but it's fun to have a way to sneer at the people who don't usually get sneered at. On the other hand it feels like there's this racial appropriation in it where this term that had one valence within the black community and has been used widely there for years suddenly has become a way that like white guys talk about other white guys lovingly and then the rest of the culture makes fun of them. So that seems confusing. There's like a gender upset and a racial appropriation happening at the same time.
0: Right. I I think my the thing that I lament is that like all things, I think the thing with 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 language in general is that once people become aware that a word is a thing and is in it's, you know, in the sort of linguistic marketplace, so to speak, it then becomes appropriable. Right. Like anybody can use it. I don't really actually have I don't like it when people call me bro. But I understand the inevitability of no longer being able to retain its exclusivity, right? I accept that there's a kind of open sourceness with with all cultures, especially blackness. And you just kind of have to see the... the, You have to give up the the program. And you can hold on to it in other ways, but it always will change. And people will always find ways to, to, to hack into it. But the thing about Bro to me as a pejorative is that it kind of... It leaves men and particularly white men at a weird loss, right? Because there's nothing inherently wrong with men being friends with each other. I don't think. And <laughs> I, think, I think there's a way that we're sort of writing off what to me, especially if you watch the Jersey Shore or, you know, you, there are any men in your life or near your life who get great pleasure from being around each other. I'm not happy with the the dismissal of that bond. The problem, of course, is that there's a performative aspect to that bond that then becomes a problem. And that's when you get into this, what for me is a cultural bro issue. Mm-hmm. When the broness becomes a way to suppress, explain, condescend, uh, block, you know, B-L-O-C- uh, around a particular idea or or person in this case Bernie Sanders but uh, you know i it's it's tough for me because it's both a problem in one direction and a problem in a different direction
1: well it's almost as if as male intimacy increases heteronormativity has to increase correspondingly along with it in order to keep heterosexual men bonding intensively with one another comfortable with their masculinity against the background of a generally troubled era for male, you know, identity. Right. Yes, And so it may have an internal warmth and power of bonding that's quite admirable, but it may imply exclusions and, you know, and judgments that are unsavory, right?
0: Agreed. I, but I do think that we just have to come up with some better terms for some of this stuff. <laughs> and we have them, right? They're useful things like assholes. You know, that really gets the job done when you're talking about groups of people who behave in a certain way toward other people. Mm -hmm.
4: But you also you make a distinction between what you call the classic bro and then the newer pejorative usage of bro. For example, the Bernie bro that you just you just made reference to. So do you feel like there's there was there was a lost utopia of of brodom that we've we've turned from? Oh, I think
0: we're post lapsarian on that one. I think that unless there, unless, again, unless there's another, unless we can come up with other terms to apply to people like a Bernie bro, but you know, there's now. I mean, bro is now affixable to anything. I mean, there's there's science bros or bro science, which are the guys who you know, the CrossFit guys who or who who might do CrossFit but really believe that the science around what working out can do for your body is bogus. There are wait, sorry. I can't explain it, Julia. I know you're going to want a better explanation, but I'm not going to be able to give it to you. Okay. But, 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 bro science is, it has something to do with, with physical fitness and the body and like just being super ripped and not caring about the, fi- the fact that, for instance, a lot of those drugs aren't FDA approved. There are, I mean, there's, just pick a, pick you know, something you don't like and attach bro to it. What and about, it's a thing.
1: could you be a Hillary bro?
5: I don't know what uh, that I even would look like. We people you... have seen
0: Wesley's <laughs> we face. A,
2: we need a gif of that face. <laughs> yeah, That was like the face of like,
0: taking a breath. Like...
1: <laughs> blew head your mind, exploded. huh?
0: Yeah, I don't know how that would work. I mean, let, we could sit here and, and define what a Hillary bro might be. But I mean, isn't the I think the Hillary's whole...
2: problem is, is that, that she, she doesn't, doesn't have, have any bros. bros.
0: If she had some bros, she wouldn't be in this mess,
1: let's frankly. Ha- let's hashtag this, yeah. I <laughs> mean,
2: here here's one thing that, that I- wonder about it seems like bro as a form of address remains in somewhat wide use or at wide
0: least wide as possible use
2: um i mean it's pro- now that you've written an essay about it in the times it'll probably wane
0: yeah but- i killed it i don't think so I, I mean i hear it every single day many times a day right, I, right, people right. my neck my the the my friend who lives upstairs from me a white woman in our age area calls me bro whoa yeah I mean, I'm never going to tell. I mean, I don't, it doesn't like, make my blood pressure grow up the way it does with most people. But yeah, she uses it. Everybody uses it. I have a bunch of kids on the subway today broing each other, like, like black right. and Hispanic kids. It's- so
2: bro is a form of address both, you know, cross cultures seems like it continues to exist. But nobody self-identifies as bro no. the noun. No, exactly. Like bro yes. the noun is only a pejorative you apply to another group.
0: Well, the the thing that I bring up in the piece is the Rob Gronkowski party ship. Rob Gronkowski <laughs> tied in for the New England Patriots, had a big party on a uh, a big Norwegian cruise line ship.
4: you got to say the name of it. The Gronk Express. What was it it's called? It's
0: the Gronk's Party Boat. <laughs> yeah. A party ship. Sorry. Gronk's Party Ship. And it invited people, you know... Bring your babes and your bros. I mean, there is, oh, right. you okay. know, what are you doing tonight? I'm I'm going out with my bros. But if you wanted, if, you know, what are you, a, in the same way that you wouldn't self-identify as a hipster, you also wouldn't self-identify yeah, as a bro. Yeah, like that's still,
2: that's still relational. It's like my bros. You would never be like, I,
0: bro. Right. <laughs> as a bro, let me tell you. Yeah. You know, no, nobody would do that. I think the only thing left to to where that's applicable for me, and it's a term I hate, but people still identify this way, is foodie. I know that we've gone <laughs> off some other to some other planet with this, but that's the only self identification that that's that to me is kind of pejorative, that people don't understand as pejorative, and still use to explain their relationship to a certain kind of dining. That's why foodies are worse than bros. Yes, they are worse than bros. (laughs) Foodies are the worst. They're the worst
3: because they don't even
0: like food. They like taking pictures of food and saying they checked in at a place that serves food and they got through a line at a food place.
2: I mean, it's true. Of all of the things to, to disparage, the relational bro, the me and my buds of it, it's not the worst thing in the world for those people within their relationships with one another obviously it can sometimes reflect outward towards women or people of other classes or ethnic groups in ways that are unappealing but the the inner the inner like bro as endearment is like
0: sort of uncorrupted i mean yeah i think a lot of us know people who at least in some ways have some attachment to men in a way that if you know dana and julia were out be like those dudes are bros and then you turn around and one of those guys is your husband or so do you know what i mean like it it just <laughs> could you imagine
2: <laughs> it's fun to think of our particular spouses just like broing down just together bro-ing. out there with some bros but
0: there's a way in which i think i've heard women sort of talk about not necessarily identifying men as as bro in the way we defined it at the top of the segment but as feeling that there's a kind of there's a way that men talk to each other when they don't care whether or not anybody is listening that feels exclusionary of them that they the only word they can come up with because it's the least offensive word is bro like this isn't misogyny this isn't sexism mm-hmm. or chauvinism mm-hmm. it's just kind of a
1: yeah
0: like oblivious Male camaraderie that that women find annoying.
4: But what can I just stand up somewhat as a as an excluded woman from Brodom to say? I sensed the urge for some kind of lost utopia in your piece when you talk about how difficult it is for men to, or as Steve mm-hmm. just said, for yeah. men to find an identity for themselves right. right now. Right. I mean, are we really going to say that? Taylor Swift can have her squad goals and her you know, girl friendships and that there's not any space for men to have friendships that maybe do exclude women in a non-misogynistic way, right. just this guy is, stuff, this guy is stuff. What,
0: right, this is what I'm, this is, yes, that is gone, Milton. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: it's over.
1: I, I, I'm feeling the urge to in the piece to its author <laughs> right now, so I, could, how about this as a distinction? Um, to the extent that a man and a group of friends male friends are aware of the fact that we live in a time of unique masculine insecurity and they don't experience this bitterly as a loss for which they need to compensate for but nonetheless enacting this destabilization they then inhabit the role of man with a degree of like you know self-consciousness bro is okay to the extent that they are using it to compensate for things they find threatening about feminism and yeah. the loss of masculine especially white masculine prerogative it's repulsive
0: I think you just described Batman versus Superman <laughs> <laughs> I think that is Bruce that movie in a in a very well done sentence Steven Well
4: as Ben Affleck intones through his filter at one point men are still good it's true. <laughs> it's true it's true it's <laughs> true all
1: right well all right well Wesley always it's such a huge pleasure to have you on the show it was great to have you back bro it's a pleasure to be here was. <laughs> oh, yes! look. That was so good. I got the look man <laughs> do not call me bro says Wesley Morris to Steve McAuver
4: I'm not your bro dude <laughs> apparently
1: all right thanks so much for coming on that was great always all right now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor Julia Turner What do we have?
2: We have a new sponsor this week, Steve. It's scorebig.com, which is an online ticket reseller with a difference. Scorebig works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get their unsold tickets at unpublished prices. And they have a couple of cool features that you might not find elsewhere on the web. The first is that all of the fees and shipping costs are built in, so you won't have the experience of clicking around and looking through the exact seat map of the stadium or arena or theater you want to go to and picking the perfect set of seats that's at the absolute maximum of what you've decided you want to pay to go to the thing and then hitting purchase and being like, oh, fuck, there's an extra like $100 I wasn't factoring in. I have to go back and do the whole thing again. So they build in the the costs, uh, which is nice when you're trying to figure out what you actually want to spend. And then also for certain events, they have a feature called name a ticket price. So if you just want to go... You know, I think probably this summer we'll take our kids to their first baseball game. They've started to get interested in uh, baseball as a concept. Uh, you could sort of pick a game that you want to go to, pick how much you want to pay for the seats. If you're taking three-year-olds to a baseball game for the first time, you're probably really only going to go for like four innings and a hot dog and get out of there. So you don't really want to pay premium rates for premium seats. And the service will find you some seats at the price you want to pay. So next time you go see any game or show, go to Score Big first and see how much you can save. Go to ScoreBig.com right now. Click on the microphone, enter promo code CULTURE, and you'll save an extra $20 off your first purchase. That's ScoreBig.com promo code CULTURE for 20 bucks off whatever you buy.
1: All right. Well, now is the moment in our uh, podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have?
2: This
4: week, I'm going to endorse another podcast that's uh, on Slate and on Panoply, but I swear there's no Paola involved. It is truly a wonderful podcast, and I'm so excited it's back. It's June Thomas's podcast on The Americans. Have you guys been listening? And do you watch The Americans?
2: I've like fallen fatally behind in The Americans. I'm going to watch The Americans in like 2024, <laughs> and then I'll listen
1: to June's podcast then too.
4: Oh, my God. It's so good. Steve, do you watch The American? I do.
1: I'm catching up, though. I'm behind.
4: To me, it's one of the few appointment viewings of the week. And uh, and what June is doing on this podcast is very different from your your average sort of let's discuss what happened on the episode podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's kind of what we do here. <laughs> but hers is actually an Insider's Workings of the Show podcast. And so every week she talks to Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, who are the co-creators and showrunners of the show, plus whoever else she could get on. She had Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese for the first episode and on the second episode for this season, because there have now been two new episodes of The Americans this season. She got this guy who was an actual operative in the style of their their characters on the show, an East German who was conscripted by the Stasi to pose as an American and who has some actual stories that relate to um, things that are happening on the show. And he's an amazing storyteller. And June is just the best interviewer. I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you're... In love with june thomas so if you want to hear her dig into what i think is one of the best shows on tv right now um slates the americans podcast posts every week after the show airs on wednesday
1: mm, cool uh julia what do you have
4: i just
2: want to follow that up by saying that one of my favorite june thomas podcast experiences is actually a slate plus members only perk which has concluded forever so it's really good i'm shouting it out now but <laughs> She and Seth Stevenson did this joint podcast for Down Abbey for the last few seasons including the the final season which just concluded a couple of weeks ago. And I stopped watching Down Abbey as soon as the guy died like in season 2 or whatever, but I've been listening to them consistently throughout <laughs> and just following it exclusively as a podcast and it's delightful. And if you think that show is preposterous and basically worthless but still entertaining, it's a great way to experience it. So uh, just skip the end of Downton, but listen to to June and Seth on Slate Plus. Um, all right, guys, I, I got nothing here. I'm going to endorse my favorite yogurt. Uh, <laughs> I, it's culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's like nice. the corniest joke you've made <laughs> nice. in eight years, Dana. I've like never heard you make a joke <laughs> that lame in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Inspired by your endorsement. Ah, oh, fantastic. Um... Okay, yogurt's delicious, but often it's too sweet if you get the flavored kind, right? It's got like so much syrupy gloop in the bottom. Also, I definitely don't like yogurt that has a a separate strata of gloop that you have to stir in. I find that really icky, those weirdly slimy bits of former fruit. I, in
4: general, don't like foods that are packaged with a flavor packet that comes separately that you mix (laughs) in to add flavor to it. That is just a disgusting concept. There's
2: something about that particular like sugar sludge at the bottom of certain yogurts that I find just abhorrent. Like if forced to eat one on a plane, I'll just eat the cream off the top and then like discard. So in general, I prefer my yogurts pre-blended and not too sweet. And I have become of late a very deep and ardent fan of Sigis yogurt or Siggy's yogurt. It's like not, it's like Icelandic, but made in New Jersey, whatever. It's one of the yogurt charlatans of the day that pretends to be a an edifying foreign yogurt. Um, but Their yogurt is lower sugar generally. Like it has less sugar per, you know, four ounce serving or whatever than the other ones. And they have one flavor, orange ginger, which I love because why not have ginger in it? I would like just add ginger to all foods ever. And ginger yogurt, like nobody makes it, but they make this amazing ginger flavor. And then the orange is just kind of like a light sort of tangy citrusy zest. So it's actually, the additive isn't sweetening. And there's like little bits of pulpy kind of orange rind and ginger in it there's like little nubs in it but there's not a slurry of sweet so sigus orange ginger yogurt you asked i
1: answered that's
2: what i'm endorsing this week sorry but it's delicious so you're welcome as well
1: how am i ever gonna follow that (laughs) i mean i can't clear that bar
5: it's so low your limbo skills (laughs) are lacking
1: all right well um i'm gonna endorse an album by the band Echo and the Bunnymen who yes. I previously have you know gone on about on the show but I really only know them from their first you know iteration when they broke in the 80s up through I don't know the first four whatever records they made in the 80s maybe early 90s but then in 97 I think it was no 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 no, no 99 I see here they came out with a record record called What Are You Going to Do With Your Life which it just seems to me it's a very hard target to hit which is you've had your first blush of success you've been the band you've been these you know whip it thin guys in super skinny pants you know and now you're like you've you're in mid career uh where do you where do you go do you like try to act like teenagers for the rest of your life do you become bitter about the music business and about having been marketed as a product and 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 Vitriol songs that are thinly veiled vitriol. But this record it's an amazing record. It's similar to their early earlier material, but it's mellowed so perfectly and so appropriate, appropriately and there's just this tone which wouldn't you wouldn't call their natural tone. You wouldn't have said this was the natural progression for Echo and the Bunnymen, but like kind of self-elegy a little bit, like 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 things soften into something else maybe even entirely but they're more beautiful for it it's like this, the tone of the record is is so perfect it it shocked me and i think the songwriting is equivalently high to their early stuff i mean you know obviously nothing replaces killing moon and you know material from that part of their career but it's it's a, it's a lovely record i really was bowled over by it
2: that sounds great
1: um i didn't know that you were an echo fan i'm not i just picked that completely <laughs> Bro, <laughs> oh, you bro me. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply, the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network as well, <laughs> just as Andy Bowers is. <laughs> Check out our entire I've never noticed that before. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com/panoply. That word once again is Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and the entire Panoply Network. I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week
0: find you now what I need then I wonder how not wonder when There's something going wrong again with me